Thank you, Ambika, for reading that passage for us. Uh, I, uh, I'm amazed at just how well it ties in with uh, the Revelation chapter 3, 7 13 passage uh, today in a couple of different ways that we're going to get to here in just a little bit. Today's word is going to be the word uh, diligent. Each week we've had kind of one word we've focused on for the different churches in the seven letters uh, from the Revelation chapter 3. Before I get started today, I just want to wish a happy birthday to Sandy Copenhaver. Saw her come in this morning. Today is her birthday. I said, today's the actual day. She said, yeah. So happy birthday. Happy birthday to her. I heard about a guy who um, his, he had a weakened heart, and his doctor had told his wife, make sure whatever you do that he doesn't get overloaded on excitement. You know, too much of any good or bad thing that might surprise him or get, him, get his uh, blood pressure going, uh, it, could, it, it could kill him. So be very careful that you, you keep him calm and sedate at all times. Well, one morning he was sound asleep, and there was a light knocking at the door, and when she opened the door, it was Publisher's Clearinghouse, uh, informing them that they had won $10 million, you know, like you used to see on the commercials. And, oh, they were so excited about it. This is great news, a wonderful thing. But what is she going to do about her husband when he wakes up? How is she going to tell him? And she began to kind of be concerned about that. And so she did what, what everyone who comes into $10 million should do. She immediately called the preacher. <laughs> and, um, and she said, well, I've got the situation. My husband, he can't be excited. And, and we've won $10 million. And I don't know how to tell him. I was thinking maybe you could come over and just tactfully and gently make him aware of, of the good news. And he said, I'll be glad to do that. And so he came over, and that afternoon they were sitting out on the front porch there, drinking their iced tea, rocking in the rocking chairs. And, and he said to him, said, uh, you know, he goes, hey, I, I'm just curious. got a little uh, hypothetical question for you. Hey, say, what would you do if you came into, I don't know, uh, $10 million? And the guy said, oh, that's, a, that's easy, preacher. I know exactly what I'd do. I'd give a million of it to the church. <laughs> At which point the preacher dropped dead of a heart attack. <laughs> Have you ever heard people say, you know, if I had a million dollars, this is what I would do. I would, if. I would give, you know, this to charity, or I would help orphans, or I would, you know, I would uh, I, I'd sign up to serve, volunteer. If I had more time, if I had better skills, if I could sing like some of the wonderful, you know, stars that we see on television, this is how I, I would use that gift if I had, had that talent. Well, this morning, I want to tell you that living for Jesus is more about what you do for his kingdom with what you have right now than with what you wish you had or hope to have in the future. See, a lot of people, we compare ourselves and we say, I don't have the gift set of this person, but if I did, or I don't have the resources of these people, but if I did, and the fact of the matter is, what are you doing with what you have right now? How are you serving the Lord? How are you making a kingdom impact right now with what you you do have the church at philadelphia who received this letter uh, from the apostle john words of jesus to them is addressing the fact that the door was open to them right now they had the open door and jesus is the one who is the gatekeeper he is the one with the keys he is the one who can open and close the door at any moment and regardless of what the culture around them may have been telling them that door was open and they needed to seize the moment and serve him immediately. And for uh, good news for the church at Philadelphia, their letter is one that has nothing but affirmation in it and a warning of what's to come. There was no negative criticisms uh, that Jesus had for them. 
The first thing that I see in this church at Philadelphia about their need to be diligent to make the most of this open door is that with little power comes great ability. Verses 7 and 8. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. You have kept my word, and you have not denied my name, despite your limited power. The Philadelphians had little power, but what they did have was an open door. God specializes in using our weakness for his greatness. Have you noticed that in the scripture? And he's very, very careful to make sure that when he empowers someone, that all of the credit and the glory goes to him and not to the person performing the great deed. You think about Gideon and and the overwhelming odds that were against him and how outnumbered he was, and yet God continued to whittle down the number of soldiers that Gideon had down to like 300 so that when he went up against the enemy, it was overwhelmingly obvious that God is the one who gives the power and and, and the victory. When David goes up against the giant Philistine Goliath, David's the underdog. David is destined to lose from an earthly standpoint, and yet David conquered the giant because he came against him, not with sword and javelin and spear, but in the name of the God of Israel. And I wonder today, what is God calling us to do? Maybe as a church or maybe you individually, is there something beyond your own ability, your own power, your own wealth, your own time, your own talent, something so big that if God's not in it, you'll fail. Something that he would unmistakably deserve and receive the credit for. He is the one who has the keys. He is the only one who shuts the door or opens the door. Sometimes we wait. What are we waiting for? Waiting till we have more experience, waiting till we feel the call, waiting till we feel talented enough, waiting till we feel prosperous enough. And sometimes we're waiting and the door is open right before us. The name Philadelphia of this church means city of brotherly love. The church at Philadelphia was named uh, after uh, the, the name for philos means uh, brotherly uh, love and and Delphus means or it means the brother part of that. Now this was a fertile plain that was subject to uh, earthquakes and known as the gateway to the east. I thought that kind of sounds a little bit like Indianapolis, doesn't it? Where the uh, crossroads of America. It was located on a very fertile plain, and here we are surrounded by all of this great uh, farmland. Jesus identifies himself as the one who is holy, who is true. He is the promised Messiah of old, is the, the one who has the key of David. Jesus has the key to open and close the door. He's the gatekeeper. He gives and he takes away. He's in charge. The Philadelphian Christians had an open door with opportunities and great potential. I think of the opportunities that we have here at Dover Christian Church. We do. The fields are ripe for harvest, so to speak in the sense that we are surrounded right here close at home with all kinds of opportunities to be the proverbial hands and feet of Jesus, to love 
our neighbors and give Jesus the credit, to love one another and give Jesus the credit, to be a shining light in the, in the community, all kinds of great opportunities for us. Uh, the open door sometimes prevents us from having an excuse for not making uh, the Great Commission a priority of making disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching these new disciples to obey all that is commanded. One of our steps in the discipleship pathway is, is multiply. Multiply. Invest in leading others to Christ. The longer we are Christians, the less it seems that we know people who are not already followers of Christ. Water kind of seeks its own level, and before long, everyone that we associate ourselves with is already saved, or already members of our church, perhaps. And sometimes we have to be very intentional, very strategic, to kind of get out of, outside of the four walls of the church and actually get out in the community and rub shoulders with the irreligious people, people who do not already have a church home, people with whom we can shine the light of Christ on and show the goodness and the grace that comes through Jesus alone. You see open doors, opportunities to invest in others. Uh, Love, Inc. The Inc. part, I-N-C, stands for In the Name of Christ. This is one of our faith promise partnerships. And Dover Christian Church is a gap church. And our specific niche that we have is, I used to call it a frozen food ministry. Specifically, it is the the frozen meat uh, part of it. And people get vouchers who have been qualified to receive the assistance that they drive out here to Dover. And uh, they are met with the loving reception of Miss Rita and, and are taken to a refrigerator that was donated by a project by one of our growth groups. And, and they go home with meat to feed their family. And they are so touched by the love, the no-strings-attached gift. Here coming up at the end of this month, we'll have the opportunity to get out in the community and to be a part of what's important and what matters to them. We can participate in the festival of the... The, uh, the Turning Leaves Parade. Dover will have a, a float in that again this year. And some of you have already brought in candy for that, which we appreciate. On that same day preceding the parade, there will be the opportunity to be uh, a part of Hope on the Trail uh, to help raise awareness and funds for impoverished children in Ethiopia through the Ministry of Hope for His Children. We can invite people who don't have a church home to come and worship with us that first Sunday of October at the outdoor worship uh, service that we're going to have again this year on the other side of the, the pond over here. And that's a, that's a fun day. People who have never been to church and, and, and will oftentimes give that excuse, well, if I came to your church, the roof would fall in. You ever hear anybody say that? I always wonder, is there something about the architecture I don't know? <laughs> you know, they let me in. <laughs> Well, if they're worried about that, you just tell them, come join us out by the ponds on the other side of the pond on the first Sunday of October, and they'll see that they're welcome and and fit right in. Two ways that we can tap into God's power are listed in verse 8. One is to use the little power that we do have to live according to his word. He says, I know your limited power, but you have stayed true to my word. You've not abandoned my word. In this day and age, a lot of times, we've bought into the myth that, you know, that the absolute truth is, is gone by the wayside and that it's, it's politically incorrect to use Scripture or to be, to be proud of your faith and, and a follower of Jesus. But I tell you, that even in today, today's society, that the door is still open. The one who has the power to open the door and close the door has the door open 
And we can be confident yet loving about our stand on that. And we can continue to show the love of Jesus to others. Um, Our unique signature, our distinguishing logo, our identifiable brand is that we love like Jesus loves. It's a radical kind of love, isn't it? I mean, we use the word love kind of flippantly today. We might say, I love my wife. I love that pizza. (laughs) I love my favorite sports team. (laughs) I love God. We use that one word. But love, the Jesus kind of love, is radical. You remember the words to that well-known verse, John 3, 16, for God so what? Loved the world that he sent his one and only son to the earth. He who knew no sin died in our place. Jesus left the perfection of heaven, came to earth, lived among us for 33 years, and died in our place on the cross. He didn't want to go. In the garden, he prayed to his father, and he said, if there is any other way, if there is any other way for yours and my sins to be washed clean and a stand before God as if we had never sinned someday, if there be any other way, let this cup of suffering pass from me, but not what I want, what you want, Lord. Your will be done. And he went to the cross. The book of Romans says that God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, it's all about love, and God demonstrated that through Jesus. And if you're going to have radical love, Jesus' kind of love, then it's going to play itself out in the things that you do and you say because you begin to act like Jesus and live like Jesus, and that's true discipleship. Dallas Willard said, true discipleship is to live your life the way Jesus would live it through you. Do you love the way Jesus would love others through you? Do you look for opportunities? Do you invest in other people? Do they know that they matter to you? Someone has said, people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. <laughs> Cliche, but true. People don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. And my good friend P.V. John of Care India always said, if you want to preach the gospel to a hungry man... Make sure you wrap it in a sandwich. <laughs> because what the world understands, what they see, is love and action. Not just a name only. I'm a Christian. What does that mean? Well, it means you're a follower of Christ. You're a mini-Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means you love radically. If you're truly following him. John thirteen thirty five says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Even that radical Jesus kind of love that we have within the church body, is a, it's our business card, it's our brand, it's our logo, it's what we're known for. My grandmother has often said that my Uncle Norm, the oldest of her two children, my dad's older brother, that uh, what won him to Christ was that when my grandfather had his stroke, the church began bringing food to the home. He had never seen that done. He'd grown up his whole life going to, you know, going to a church as a kid and so forth, but he had never really ever embraced the idea. But when he saw love in action, he became more in tune and was willing to have a conversation with the preacher one day, which eventually led to his being baptized into Christ. Living for Jesus is more about what you do for his kingdom with what you have right now than with what you wish you had, or hope you have later. You're the best you God has. 
You're the only you God has. Psalm 139 talks all about how God knew us before we were even born. Long before ultrasound, he was able to witness our construction there in our mother's wombs as we were being knitted and and fitted together and formed. He was able to see that. He was able to know the day you would be born and the day that you will leave this earth and go to heaven. It's no surprise to him. There is nowhere that you can go that is so high or low or far away or dark enough. This is all in Psalm 139, that God does not constantly monitor your every step. He knows your words before you speak them. He knows every, this isn't in that psalm, but he knows every hair on your head, the number of them. I believe we could all line up for us and we could all say, oh, do me, do me. And, and, and God would be able to tell you the exact number of hairs on your head. He knows you. He's intimately interested in you. You've got the only thumbprint you have. You've got a unique DNA. It's just amazing and remarkable. You're the only you God has, and the best person you can be is be who you are. Be the you that God created. Your gift set and level of quality. Your time. Your resources. See, when you, when you sign up to be a follower of Christ and you're born again to him, you die to yourself and you live for him, and everything that you have and everything that you do belongs to his kingdom, and he sits on the throne in your heart. And everything that you do should all be about his kingdom. I call myself a minister, but we're all ministers, right? Well, I'm just a fellow brother in Christ. I'm blessed to get to be a full-time vocational minister, but you're a minister too. You're on the mission field, regardless of your line of work, in the classroom, on the ball field, in the club, on the street in which you live, or in your neighborhood. You are on the mission field. And above all, above all, who you are is a follower of Christ. Great movie. Shauna and I went to see last night. This isn't in my notes. I won't belabor it long, I promise. We went to see Overcomer last night. Wow. <laughs> Best of the Christian movies I've, I've ever seen. Wow. It was cold in the theater, which I loved, but the cold chill that I had was from what I saw on the, on the screen. Fantastic. You are the you, the only you that God has. And the best, you that, the best that you could possibly be is who you are in Christ. Not your role in the home. That's a result of who you are in Christ. Not the work that you do in the office. That's what you do as a a Christian. But who you are, you're a follower of Jesus and you belong to him. The best is yet to come. Look at verse 9, chapter 3, Revelation 3. It says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and they'll bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Critics of your faith will eventually know that you are right. The Bible says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And even though there may be skeptics who scoff at you, you may have that professor someday in college who challenges your faith and wants you to to believe that God is dead when he is not, eventually everyone will know that you were right, that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God. Uh, It says that the enemies of Christ 
say that they are Jews but are, are not really Jews. This is not an anti-Jewish passage. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish prophecies, in fact. His followers, Jews and Gentiles alike, are the true Israel. And those who oppose his work are what he calls the synagogue of Satan. Those are strong words, right? The synagogue of Satan? Wow! These are people who claim to be Jews, but in fact, what they are trying to do is they are scoffing at the fulfillment of Scripture and they are abusing Christians and uh, persecuting them for their faith. Second thing there is critics of your faith will eventually know that Jesus loves you. Your worth, your value is who you are to God through Christ. And that's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. More than any degree that you could earn. More than any position at work you could attain. More than any award on the field or in the basketball court or anywhere else, in the Olympics, wherever else. Nothing, nothing appraises your value more than who you are to Almighty God, the creator of the universe. And he loves you so much that he sent Jesus to the earth to die for your sins, that you might be twice his, to win you back, to cleanse your sins so that he could be true to his promise, his word, that sin separates us eternally from him. And he doesn't just look the other way, but instead you are redeemed. You are bought back with a price. You are purchased with the blood of Jesus and you belong to him. And if you don't think that gives you great value, you need to go in the antique a road show and have your appraisal done by the Holy Spirit because you matter greatly to the one who created you. Living for Jesus is more about what you do for his kingdom with what you have right now than with what you hope you have later or what you wish you had. Be who you are and be it right now. One final thing is be on the winning team. Uh, verses 10 through 13 says this. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. You see that contrast there between synagogue of Satan and, pillar, and temple of God. You'll be a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. DeGarmo and Key. Anybody remember them? D and K? <laughs> okay, I got some of my peers out here are remembering D and K. You remember the pledge? Hopefully I've got the right group on this. The pledge, he died for me, I'll live for him. That was, that's kind of the covenant there. He died for me, I'll live for him. This is what he's done for me, I'm going to live for him. And here we have this thing. If you go through this patient, enduring suffering here on earth, the best really is yet to come, and he's going to take care of you. There will be trials. This is not a health and wealth gospel. Christians suffer just like everybody else. It rains on the just and the unjust. You know, Christians have 
wayward children just like non-Christians do. Hopefully the biblical principles that we teach them helps to, to prevent that. But you know, we have health problems just like non-Christians do. We have financial setbacks just like non-Christians do. But the power of God is seen in how we, how we deal with those setbacks, how we handle ourselves when we are disappointed or discouraged or lied about. Do we lash out? Do we become bitter? Do we walk away from God when our, when our faith is tested? Will we pass the test? Because if we do, there is a trial, a, tr- a separation from God for all of eternity that we get to avoid. Romans 6.23 says the wages of, of sin is death. If you've missed the mark, if you're not a perfect person, no one is. If you're not a perfect person, what you're going to get is that separation, that second death, separation from God for all of eternity. But, it says, if you're one who is comfortable writing in your Bible, circle that three-letter word, but. Include the comma there if you want. (laughs) The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus our Lord. The wage, the earning... The what you deserve, separation from God forever. The gift that's just given to you that you don't earn, eternal life forever. Wow, that's a great deal, isn't it? He died for me, I'll gladly live for him. And we avoid that suffering, verse 10 says. Verse 11 says that you get to keep your crown. The word stemma is the word uh, used for the type of crown that probably comes to mind immediately and that's the you know the king's diadem right the crown of a king or a queen we think of this particular uh, crown uh, stephanon is wreath or chaplet or garland think of the olympics and the golden wreaths you would see put over the ears of the of the winner this is an award a celebratory congratulations, you did it. This is the the sports banquet at the end of the school year kind of deal, and you've crossed the finish line. And what really matters is whether or not you're given this crown of life from Jesus, not about anything that they can put on your monument when you die. He died with a lot of money that he didn't get to take with him. (laughs) Instead, what really matters is he died with the crown of life. He died knowing he was going to live forever. We belong to and we are protected by God. He claims us. We're given his name and we belong to his holy city. It's called the New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. It refers to it as the New Jerusalem, the holy city. You are a citizen of the New Jerusalem when you have confessed your faith in Jesus Christ, when you have repented of all of your sins, and when you have been baptized into his death, burial, and resurrection. You have submitted yourself. You have said, I don't belong to me. I belong to him. And my citizenship is not from here. I'm a stranger. I'm an alien. I'm just passing through. My home is in heaven, and I'm homesick for home. And the older you get, the more homesick for home you will be. I can now say that as someone that understands. I've now crossed that half century mark and I now see, oh, that's what my grandparents meant by that. Homesick for heaven. The longer you live on earth, the more people you start to, you start to be homesick for that are there. And you look forward to being a part of eternity we're in eternity now. We're born again into Christ. We, but, but to be able to live with him in, in the perfection of his perfect presence in heaven is an amazing, 
amazing thing. You have your passport, your birth certificate, your naturalization papers for the, for the citizenship of heaven, and it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, this morning as we begin to conclude this part of our service, we, we always want to give everyone an opportunity to make a public declaration, if you will, a statement of faith about who they believe that Jesus is, that he is, in fact, the Son of God, that he is their Lord and Master, that he is the only Savior of man and their personal Savior. And when a person has repented and they've acknowledged their faith in him, then they have that beautiful celebration of allowing someone else to baptize them, to bury their physical body underwater and raise their body up. Not enough water in the world to wash away sins. But if the heart is right and they're truly a repentant believer, it is a great expression of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as explained in Romans 6, 1 through 11. And if that's you today and you've been putting that off, we invite you to come. Make that decision public as we stand and as our, our worship team leads us.